You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So this is kind of the culmination, really, of the series that we've been doing over the last five weeks, um, looking at different atonement theories. And I think atonement theories are a bit complicated, aren't they? We've said this a number of times over the last five weeks or so, that, you know, atonement theory is just a fancy way of explaining what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And there's loads of different, different bits of it and different ways you can approach it and different theories by different theologians over all number of years. And I think the best way to explain explain all of this and why it matters on Easter Sunday is to talk about golf, obviously. Um, I have just got back into playing golf, having not played since I moved to London, realizing there probably wouldn't be that many golf courses in Waterloo. But before I moved up here, when I was in South Wales, I used to play quite a bit. And I was part of this society that used to go around to different golf courses once a month on a Friday afternoon. We'd all take the afternoon off and we'd go and play at these fancy golf courses. Now, I wasn't very good, but I would turn up at these places like San Pierre, which was for many, many years the best golf course in the whole of Wales. It had fantastic tournaments there with all of the famous people that even people who don't know anything about golf would have heard of. You'll walk into the clubhouse and you'll see these photos of Seve Ballesteros and Nick Faldo and Ian Woosnam and the most famous golfers of all time standing there on the 18th green holding up these trophies that they'd won. And then on this Friday afternoon, it was my turn. Now, I wasn't quite as good as Seve Ballesteros or Nick Faldo or any of those other ones, but that paled into insignificance when compared to the guy that I was playing with. So there were three of us, me, my mate Neil, who's pretty good, and this old guy called John. Now, John must have been about 130, 140 years old, I reckon, minimum, if not older than that. And he turned up, and so we're all playing together, and we're the last group to play off, right? So we waited for everybody else to tee off, and then it's our go. And this guy, um, so I, I go first, and I hit my ball, and it's all right. It's not, you know, not a bad shot. And then Neil comes along, and he hits his ball, and it's a little bit straight, a little bit further than mine. And then John comes up, and he puts his ball on the tee, and then he does... What is meant to look like a golf swing? My mate Neil afterwards in the bar described it as a man trying to play cricket in a phone box. It looked nothing like a golf swing you'd ever seen. And he hits this ball and he hits it no more than this high off the ground. And it goes about 60 yards, not very far at all. Square left. It probably went as far left as it went forward. And we thought, oh, this could be a long afternoon. But John didn't care. John just, you know, picked up his clubs. Right, seen a bit of the lads. And then he walked off to find his ball. We didn't really see John a lot, to be honest, for most of the next four hours because he was often in the trees on this side or in the trees on this side. And then we'd kind of like meet up with him at the end of the hole where we were putting and then he'd tee off again and he'd be like, see you again there, lads. And then he'd wander off to the other corner of the course to find his ball. But anyway, we got to like the 15th or 16th hole, something like that. We'd been playing for about three hours or something at this point. And John had been you know just just consistently terrible for these entire three hours but always with a smile on his face and then we get to the the 15th and let's say like that's where the hole is right that's where you're aiming and he's here and he hits this shot and he hits it again really badly and it just goes straight past the hole and it probably ends up further past the hole on the other side than it was when he'd taken the previous shot so he's down this like bank at the back of the green and he goes looking for his ball and me and Neil are standing there you know ready to pat and we're like this close to the hole and we can just see the top of his head he's like found it found it great he's found the ball great okay so then he's taken his shot 
And we can just see the top of his head. And you can see the club coming up above the head. So we know that he's taken this shot. And then as the club disappears out of sight, you hear this noise. And when you hit a golf ball perfectly, there's a really weird noise. It's like a swish kind of noise. It's not even like hitting the ball kind of noise. And we hear this noise. And the ball arcs up perfectly out of these trees and it lands in the fringes of the green which slows the ball down and it lands and it rolls and it bounces onto the green and then it hits the contours of this green and it's starting to move towards the hole and me and Neil are walking in with this ball watching this ball as it gets closer and this guy's running up the bank and he's jumping over to see remember he's about 150 years old to see where this ball's gone because he knows he's hit it well and then as it rolls and it makes its way slowly it looks like it's going to stop right on the edge of the cup and then it drops into the hole. And we cheer like John's just won the open. You know, me and Neil are up, we're jumping, you know, we're high-fiving, we're doing all this kind of stuff, you know. And it was a superb moment on this day. And then we get to the next hole, and he's hitting it 50 yards square left again. But what happens is, at the end of that day, we all met in the bar, and we all ate a meal together in the bar. And we were playing a type of golf, which means you get a point score, right? And 36 is a good score. Anything above that is a great score. Any lower is a bad score. So what happens is you go back to the bar at the end. Oh, how did you do? 24 points. Didn't do very well today. How about you? Yeah, 38. Best I've played in months. How about you, John? Oh, well, honestly, on the 15th, right? Let me tell you about this one shot that I played. And the other four hours worth of bad shots, he didn't think of at all. He just told everybody about the one shot that he played. What has that got to do with atonement theory? It's because there are so many different elements to the golf swing. If you are like me and you get obsessive about things, you can very easily find yourself at 11 o'clock at night when you know you should be going to bed watching another YouTube video about how if you just drop your right shoulder a bit while you're playing a driver, you can watch all of these videos... There's all of this technique, how and when you turn your body away, turn your arms away, the tempo with which it comes through, getting your belt buckle to point towards the, all this kind of stuff. There's millions of things you can do there. The process is complicated. But what John had learned to do was celebrate the outcome. His golf swing didn't look anything like any of those YouTube videos. You could troll YouTube for about five days, I reckon. You couldn't find a golf swing that looked like John's golf swing. The process was complicated, but celebrate the outcome. And I think that is how all of these things tie together. Over the last five weeks, we've looked at a lot of complicated theology, haven't we? We've talked about a lot of different theories from a lot of different theologians over a lot of time in a lot of places. But the point of it all is that all these theories are, are something to point you towards the outcome, Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And that is what we are here to celebrate. Today is Easter Sunday. Christians all over the world will be sitting in rooms like this celebrating Jesus coming back to life and defeating death. But before we do a bit of that, before we talk a bit about that resurrection story, I want to talk about one aspect of what Jesus' life meant. Because the resurrection is also about life before death. And that life can be tough 
can't it? Before we hit the point about celebrating the resurrection, we have to be honest and say that the life that comes before death, before resurrection, can be tough, can't it? The Bible never claims that everything in this life would go smoothly for people after the resurrection. It never claims that Jesus' victory over death meant victory over everything for all of us in the day-to-day. And we know this, don't we? Because we live through struggle, don't we? All of us. Some of us today. If I stood here and I told you that if you believe this story about Jesus coming back from the dead, all your troubles would go away. Well, you wouldn't believe me, would you? And neither should you, because that wouldn't fit with my experience of actually following Jesus. But the thing is, and I don't say this lightly, the thing is that I believe in a God who is with us in the struggle and who empathizes with us because he also struggled. He also suffered. The Bible is clear that despite the resurrection, there still would be struggle, but the thing about Jesus living on earth, fully human, was not just to get to the bit where he dies so he can be resurrected. It was also about God saying that he is with us. God is with us in the suffering. This is a quote from Daniel Migliori, a theologian, who said, if Christ doesn't enter into solidarity with the hell of human condition, we remain without hope. If Christ is able to offer hope to humans, he must have entered into some of this struggle as well. Because, let's be honest, life can be tough sometimes, can't it? You know, I tell the funny golf story, but the reality is I got back into playing golf because about a year ago I was diagnosed with ME, which meant that my running and my football had to stop, and this was a sport that I could do without it requiring too much energy of me. And I don't say that for sympathy, obviously, because we've all got stories, haven't we? We've all got struggles far worse than mine. Life can be tough. And we need to acknowledge that on this weekend as well as doing that celebrating, I think. But the thing is, I believe in a God who empathizes with me who is with me in the struggle and can be with me in this struggle. Because in Jesus, he also suffered the same things. There's a guy called Francis Spufford who talks about the fact that the other two monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, they think that giving God a human body messes with holiness. Because holy means set apart or kept apart. And how can you be set apart or kept apart if you're born into the same world? He says that Christianity disagrees because the God-man mixture in Jesus brings us something more precious than conceptual purity. Hope in trouble, consolation in suffering, help in anguish. Jesus and the reality of the incarnation brings us hope in trouble, consolation in suffering, help in anguish. There is a straightforward truth that Jesus' death and resurrection roots us in a Christianity that isn't just spiritual, but is completely practical, that calls us to get our hands dirty, to sit alongside the broken and to say, me too, 
me too. This morning, we can all know a God who can also say, me too, me too. Jesus' humanity, Jesus' struggle is for all of us. So Jesus lived, died, and on the day that we celebrate today, he was resurrected. Now, we've said this over the last few weeks. There were loads of people who claimed that they were the Messiah, claimed that they were the person that the Jewish people were waiting for, only to then be killed and that to be the end of the story. So the resurrection is critical because it tells us that Jesus was different to all of these. Jesus actually was the Messiah. But the problem is that sometimes we can jump straight from here to what the resurrection can do for us. We jump straight from what happened to Jesus after he died to what happens to me after I die. And the resurrection is so much more than that. It's about life before death. I think the resurrection is God saying to humanity, you know that kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about? It's here, now. And I want you to join in with it. That old way of living, of vying for power, of looking for status, leave it behind. Let it go. Look at the example that Jesus has set, one which was constantly about self-sacrifice, even to the ultimate end, to death on a cross. Look at that example and follow it. Because Jesus has shown that the old order can be beaten, that love can triumph over death. And a way of living which is based on sacrifice and not staked us is a much better way to live. So join in. That's what today is about. So how do we join in with this resurrection story? I think that today, on the day where we're called to celebrate the story of a God whose love triumphed over even death, I think we're called to live in the light of the resurrection. We know, as I said earlier, that things can be tough. But despite the struggle, Easter Sunday says that however dark the darkness, eventually the light will break through. Here are some verses from Matthew's account of Jesus' life. They're from chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' radical message of love, of hope, of calling people to a different way of living. They say this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. One of the things that Jesus is saying to his followers here is that we're meant to be visible. We're meant to be seen Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an old theologian, said, to flee into invisibility is to deny the call of Jesus. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Theologians say that 
Jesus was probably contrasting his disciples here to another community called the Qumran community, which was a, another Jewish renewal movement. They used to call themselves the sons of light, but they lived in the desert. They had totally withdrawn from normal day-to-day life. They kept themselves to themselves. And in doing so, they failed to let their light shine. Jesus here was saying, don't be like them. Stay engaged. Get involved. Get your hands dirty. Be visible. This thing about the visibility of the church, of Christians, was a big deal for early Christians. Lots of you will know this, but for the first 300 and something years after Jesus died, Christianity was illegal. So it had to be invisible in some ways because people had to go under the radar. But then in 313 AD, Christianity was legalized by the Roman Emperor Constantine, and it became the state religion. And then in 380 AD, there was an emperor, Theodosius, who passed a few more laws, which made it very difficult to say that you were anything other than a Christian. People were still technically free not to go to church, technically free not to be Christians, but it limited your freedoms. It limited things like it negatively impacted your career, what you could do, where you could go. And also, there was no other option. It was Christianity or nothing. Now, The thing is that after this shift from Christianity being illegal to being legal, the meaning of the word Christian changed, really. Before Constantine, it took a lot of courage to say that you were a Christian. I've talked to you on a number of occasions about how I spent a bit of time in Romania when I was growing up, and I got to know a lot of people who had been Christians under communism, under Ceausescu in the 80s, when again it was illegal. And you talk to those people, and the bravery that it takes, the courage that it takes to set up churches, to meet together on a week-to-week basis, knowing that it is illegal to do so, it takes a lot of courage. It was the same thing there. Before Constantine, it took a lot of courage to say that you were a Christian. But after Constantine, it took a lot of courage to say that you weren't a Christian. And some theologians say that even though this change meant that churches were everywhere, this change made the real church invisible. Before Constantine, Christians knew that God was present in the church. After Christianity became the state religion, Christians had to take it on faith that they were meeting with a community of people who actually believed this. So many Christians in the church didn't follow God. The church struggled with visibility. How do you know whether the person you're sitting next to actually believes this story or not if everyone's got to be there? Because before this, when you were breaking the law to be there, you knew that this community of believers around you was committed. The church struggled with visibility. And I think on a much lesser scale, until probably the late 20th century. The UK struggled with that a bit as well. Years ago, I remember going to visit a friend of mine who lived in a small village just outside Oxford. And I went with him to his church on a Sunday and the whole village was there. 
And at the end of the service, I said to him, wow, it's incredible in such a small place that the church is so busy. But I didn't really see that many people who seemed to be particularly engaged in the service. And he said, oh, no. He said, none of these people will be volunteering during the week. None of them will come to anything else that the church does. None of them will do any of those things. It's just that they'll be there every Sunday because, well, that's what you do, isn't it? That's what everyone does. And if you're not there, people will look around and go, Miles wasn't there this morning. I saw Miles' seat empty. If he didn't, someone would notice. And that is what it was like, wasn't it? In a lot of places. When I grew up, everyone went to Sunday school. Because that's just what you did. But I think we're in a different place now. The last census was done in 2021 and it said there are 9.8 million people aged under the age of 40 who would call themselves Christian but there were 13.6 million people under the age of 40 in the UK who would say that they have no religion it's the first time that's happened the first time that the church under 40 has been less visible than those who say that they don't identify with any religion. So what does it mean to be a visible Christian these days? Anyone know who this is? It's Kate. Oh, I've got a hand up. Yes, correct, it is. It's Kate Forbes who stood for the leadership of the SNP uh, recently and lost in the last couple of weeks. She was uh, a Christian uh, and she said that because of her faith, she was anti-abortion and she was anti-equal marriage. I wonder if that's what it means to be a visible Christian these days. Blaming your beliefs about abortion and equal marriage for not being able to get the job that you want. And this follows on from Tim Fallon, who was the leader of the Lib Dems, who said that I think, he said, there's a glass ceiling for Christians he said, in politics, you can only go so high and then there's a glass ceiling there and the country won't allow Christians to go any further than that. I don't think there is a glass ceiling. I just think there's a glass ceiling for anyone whose personal beliefs lead them to push for laws which significantly limit equality. I think there's a glass ceiling for people whose beliefs limit the freedoms which those who have been marginalized for so long have fought for and are still fighting for. But despite what I think about that, loads of Christians have written these woe is me articles about things like this, about how hard it is to be a Christian these days. It's so tough when the world is moving in a different direction. Look at that census data, all that kind of stuff. A few months ago, I was at a, a conference for Christian ministers, and the first day, it was a bit like, oh, isn't it hard running a church? Isn't it difficult? Isn't it nice to have a few days away where we can take a break and all this kind of stuff? And and you know what? It can be hard running a church. It can be. Like any job can be difficult from time to time, can't it? But maybe it's a good thing on those kind of conferences. On the first day, you make space for people to have a bit of time out to reflect on those kind of things. But then day two was the same. And day three was the same. And then we went home. And I spent quite a lot of that conference thinking... Where's the positive story? 
We're meant to be people that bring good news. And we all get together, and there ain't no good news there. Jesus came to bring life in all its fullness. That's what sharing the good news is meant to be. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. There's a story told by a theologian called Marcelino who grew up as a peasant in a really poor area of Nicaragua. He said that in the evening, as the sun went down, him and his friends would be playing outside and a long way off at the top of the hill that they could see, they would look up and they would see the lights of the city of San Miguelito in the distance. While they were playing in the village, they could see the thing they dreamed of, the city on a hill that was lit up. Marcelino said, a city is a great union of people. And as there are a lot of houses together, we see a lot of light. And that's the way our church community will be. It'll be seen lighted from far away if it is united by love. There were a lot of houses together lit up. And that's why we see a lot of light. I wonder if that's our challenge this Easter. Each of us are called to live in the light of the resurrection. And if we do that together, if we do that as a community, each of those individual lights combines to create a light which can be seen from far away. What does it mean for you to live in the light of the resurrection? What does it mean for you individually? What does it mean for your relationships? What does it mean for your career, for the way you are in the workplace? What does it mean at home with your family? And what does it mean for us as a gathered community, as a church together, to live in the light of the resurrection? How can we shine our lights together to become that city on a hill? Because this is another example of the limitations of the English language. You are the light of the world. We can read that as if it's written to one person or to a group of people, can't we? You are the light of the world. But the Greek that it was originally written in makes it really clear that that you is talking to a community. This is meant for a group of people. A few times over the last couple of months, we've talked about this, the Waterloo Weekender. Our weekend, we spend time together in services here, in volunteering in the community, socializing, hanging out together, getting to know people. We've talked a bit about what it is and what we'll be doing over that weekend. Lots of you will know that in 2010, we wrote what became our 2020 vision. Where were we aiming for? Where were we heading in that next decade? What did that mean in an attempt to transform this Waterloo community? And then we had a plan 
in 2019 that we were going to revisit that. And in 2020, we would write the 2030 vision. Steve and I started work on it. We were going to have this whole weekend, the Waterloo weekend of 2020 in May 2020, where we talked about what our 2030 vision might look like. I don't need to explain to you why we couldn't do that. But here we are now, finally back in a place where we can have that weekend, where we can talk together about what it means to come together, to shine our light together, to transform this community. How do we make Waterloo, that city on a hill, that shines so brightly that it can be seen from across London, from across this country? And what is your role in that? I've talked to a few people recently about how when I joined the church, I was in my 20s, and it was much smaller than it is now. And the staff team that we had was even smaller again. And so what that meant was if the church leadership wanted anything done, they kind of had to come and get us and get us involved because there wasn't really that much resource around. So we were needed to step in and to step up. And what that meant was that we did step in and we did step up and we joined the leadership team and we were probably too young to know what we were doing and we were volunteering and leading projects and all those kind of things. But then it looks a bit different now in church. It's probably three times the size it was when I joined. We employ 35 people to work in a various load of different roles in our community through the week. And my worry if I'm honest, is that we end up with a congregation that comes here on a Sunday and we tell all the great stories about what's gone on during the week and then we go, oh, that's great, isn't it? And then we go away again because we don't think there's a need for us or we don't think there's a space for us to get involved in what community transformation looks like. Loads of us who joined the church leadership team and we didn't really know what we were doing in our 20s We're only in our 40s now, and we're not going anywhere soon. So what does that mean for how we help the next order 20-somethings to develop into leadership? What is the new thing that we should be doing in Waterloo? What's the new idea that somebody sitting here today has had bubbling away in their mind for the last few months? But you've not mentioned it because, well, you know, the church is already doing a load of good things. What's the new thing that might seem a bit chaotic, a bit more out there than the normal stuff that we do at the moment? So you've not told anybody because, while you think it might sound a bit silly, tell us, tell me, particularly if it's chaotic. We need a bit more chaos. Because I think... God is calling each one of us to individually shine that light in this community because that's the only way that we replicate that city on a hill. God calls us to be that light by packing food bank parcels, by opening the community fridge on a day you were going to close it and saving someone's life by giving them food, by running kids' church, by coming up with ideas that people say can't be done. Let's live in the light of the resurrection.
And let's not get stuck into that negative mindset that when we talk about how difficult it is to be a Christian in an environment when fewer people are going to church, that's not the story that we should be following. Let's live in the light of the resurrection. Today, we celebrate a man who took everything the world had to throw at him, but refused to return violence with violence, refused to return hate with hate, and came back to life as the ultimate example that love always, always wins in the end. We need to remember the example of the resurrection and the example of Jesus' life. That Christianity isn't just spiritual, but it's earthy. It's practical. It calls us to get our hands dirty, to be that resurrection light in the darkness. And there's a part to play for every single one of us in that. We're going to take communion now. I'll invite Nathan, the band, back up to play as we do that. And as you come forward to take the bread and the wine, there's also one of these here. It's a little flyer, and it says on it, live in the light of the resurrection. I would encourage you to take that away. Stick it on your fridge. Write on the back of it, what does it mean for you? What is going to change if you live in the light of the resurrection? Before we do that, I'm just going to read those verses again from Matthew chapter 5. And I'll pray for us all. And then I invite you to come forward and take communion. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God, help us today and as we go forward into the week, into the months ahead. Help us to know how we can be that resurrection light in our communities. Show us what it means to live in the light of the resurrection. Amen.